I was, I got sober on June 8th of 1989, and I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. It was a Thursday, it was an eight o'clock meeting, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about that meeting, but one of the things that really, that I really think about when I'm going to be speaking in an AA meeting, I think about kind of what's really important. So um, I thank you for the, the great introduction to me and even the better introduction to my book, which was, which was great. But the reason I, I bring this book up to the podium with me every time I'm going to do a talk, and the reason that I do that is that I think that once, you know, just as a reminder, because we're going to have some fun here, we're going to, we're going to, you know, be here for uh, maybe an hour or something, and, um, and we're going to have some fun along the way, and I'm going to tell some stories, and, and some of them are even going to be true, and the, the, uh, um, but the, the thing that I, I, I want to, when I bring the book up with me, it reminds me what's important in Alcoholics Anonymous, that when people come into AA, they hear the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's really important to me, that, that, that it's a reminder to me. And so in case we, I get carried away and I, and I don't get to that to the degree that I should, I just want to be clear that the message that's contained in our basic text, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, that I was so fortunate in early sobriety that I got, that some guys got a hold of me. These guys would be what they, they would call it trolling the bottom. And they would, they would come to around to AA meetings, to the 10 o'clock meeting, to the hoot owl meeting, and they would look for this face of hopelessness. And then they would reach their hands out as men and women and friends that, that had a real answer. And so one of the things the book says, we're people who make the approach. And these guys really understood that. So I got to get sober with some people who are experts in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and it's only by their good grace that, that, that I'm here today. And what they, they said, hey, you know, get out of this hall. I was going to meetings at a hall. And they said, just, you know, take a, take a Tuesday night and come down and meet with us on Tuesday nights in the basement of this church. And a group of us, we're going to read the book to you. And, we're, and they, they read the book, and we had a dictionary. And every sentence of the book, we started at the title page and went over the, the, our three legacies. And every single word that was in the book they had to be, was something that I had to, to understand. And we didn't go through a sentence if I didn't understand it. And we turned these things into questions and made sure that I was understanding it, not just from the intellect, but from my heart, that I knew that, that what my experience was with that particular thing enough to be able to answer the question. And so when we went through there, we went through the doctor's opinion and Bill's story. And, uh, um, you know, I, I was relating to that in a way that I would never have done had I not done that. And these guys brought a dictionary. So if there was a word that I didn't understand, like I had no idea what the word altruistic meant. You know, we have a way of saying that. And AA, that's for fun and for free. That's why we do this. That's why I came down to Ocean Shores this, this weekend. You know, I, this is something that I love. And I just want to tell you all how beautiful you are. And, and I hope if you don't believe that now, I hope you believe that by the time that my talk is done here. That I love alcoholics. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. And, um, you know, everything I, I have, I owe to Alcoholics Anonymous. If uh, I heard a speaker recently and it just resonated with me so deeply that he said, he said that everything that he owns has a stamp of, that says property of Alcoholics Anonymous on it. 
And so I've started using that. Like I think about that every little thing because when I got here to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was homeless. I didn't have a thing to my name. There wasn't a person in this world that would have gave $5. There was not one person that would have loaned me $5. Not my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, none of my past employers, none of them would have took, taken a, a call from me or helped me in any kind of way because I'd burned all those bridges. Um, so the other thing that's really important to me is that I, I recently just, it, it's just been a, it's been a few years now, but I read this book, and you know, our time is so mixed up now, isn't it? Our time, because I think about something and it seems like, oh yeah, no, that was just a few months ago, and then I think, oh no, that was before this pandemic, you know, that's been like a couple of years now. But I read this book, and I, I love going to bookstores, and I look for old AA stuff, and I found some really great finds, you know, I'm one of these guys, I found a, a first edition big book for a dollar at a church basement store, and and uh, um, uh, and so, but I love looking for books, and I found this book that was written by a guy who was a prolific author in the Oxford Group movement, and you know, Bill Wilson was an Oxford Group member, we won't go into that too much, but so was Dr. Bob, so was Ebby who came and, and called on him, so was Roland whose story is the certain American businessman, these guys were all Oxford Group members, and so I got interested in that kind of AA history, and I'd go out and look for these old books, and I found this book was a name that I recognized, and he was an old Oxford group guy, not an alcoholic, but a guy who was a real prolific writer during that time and wrote all about the Oxford group stuff. And, and he wrote this book, and, and he actually just edited this book, and this edited the book was called um, One Sermon to Preach was the name of this book. Um, and don't write that down because I, I wouldn't recommend the book. It wasn't very good. And the... But the reason that I bring that up, it like got my attention. The idea was that he had that he would go to these leading ministers and, and, and spiritual leaders of his time and ask them if they would just write a few pages. If you had one sermon to, to preach, what would that be? And, uh, and unfortunately, he asked people that were all kind of uh, of the same cloth, so to speak, and they all kind of answered the same answer and... And but it got me thinking, you know, like if I get asked to speak at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, you know, and I only get asked one time, you know, what is it that I would want to say? What is it that what message would I want to 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 what message is it that I would want to convey to people, especially to the new people and and not just the new people. I've been sober 32 years now and and I still go to meetings and I go to meetings for the purpose that was taught me to look for the face of hopelessness and reach my hand out to the still suffering alcoholic um, and I, I know that face of hopelessness because I looked at it in the mirror for so many years and uh, and so um, and what I've noticed is that a lot of the guys that I sponsor now are people that have been around AA for a long time People that have been around and had years of sobriety are coming to me and asking me to sponsor them. And they want, they, they, they're hungry for this new experience. They've had what, what I describe as this kind of low-level normalcy that's kind of snuck into their sobriety where, where we get to a place and, and just, you know, and, and to get people moving in a direction where they understand that you can have a brand new spiritual experience that will revolutionize and change your life in late sobriety as much as it did, and I'm, and I'm talking from my own experience, that, that what I'm doing today, that kind of things are things I would have never imagined. You know, they, they, there's a saying like that, that we 
couldn't even, you know, these, these are things that I would have only dreamed of, but the things I'm doing in my life today are things that I couldn't, um, that, that I couldn't even have dreamed of because I didn't have the consciousness to even think about that stuff at that level. And so, um, you know, late in sobriety, people, you know, sometimes the face of hopelessness is on a person that's 20 or 25 or 30 years sober. So um, I got sober uh, um, in 89, and I walked into, yes, 89 was such a, such a good year. It didn't seem so at the time. The, I, I walked, I, I'd, I'd been uh, hanging out behind a McDonald's restaurant in Seattle. And across the, the front of this McDonald's restaurant, it looked like a facade that connected these two buildings, but they were really separate buildings. There was the building that McDonald's was in, and there was another building that housed a couple of things, including uh, um, the Baranoff Tavern which was kind of like what they call a Viking bar where all the uh, Norwegian fishermen drank. And, and, but if you go around back and behind that McDonald's, there was a space in there about six feet wide. And you could go up a little, little tiny hill and through some bushes and you could get back in to this space where nobody could find you. And I got a big piece of cardboard, like a refrigerator box sized piece of cardboard and and I drug that back in there, and, you know, I'd, I'd fixed it up. It was, you know, it wasn't a bad place, but, um, you know, it had, it had a f I had a few amenities and stuff going back there. The, uh, the thing about that, when I think about that nowadays, the thing I think about is I think, like, like in, in, in Seattle, I've got to be so careful here. I, I don't even know why I'm going to say this, but the, um, in Seattle now, um, you can just pitch a tent anywhere you want. I mean, you could pitch a tent, like, in front of my house, and that's, that's fine, you know, and, and but, uh, um, and, you know, the, but, you know, I don't, I don't want to be this guy like, oh, I walked to school both, you know, had to go uphill both ways and stuff, but back in my day, you had to hide your homelessness, man, you couldn't, you couldn't just be homeless, you know, if I would, the, the thought that I could have pitched a tent out in front of that McDonald's restaurant and not hidden back in somewhere, they would have come by and just beat the crap out of me, man. They'd say, what has got into you, boy? You're going to think you're going to pitch a tent and, and camp? And no. And so, uh, so I was hidden out pretty good back in there. And I was, you know, I'd, I'd come from an alcoholic home. I had an alcoholic mother and an alcoholic stepfather. And I went through all the stuff that that entails. They were, they were severe alcoholics and drug addicts. And so in my... And we just, you know, in, in, and I started drinking and doing drugs in my early junior high school years. And I was probably, I think I was 12 years old. And, you know, my brother and I had mowed the lawn for this, this hippie that lived next door. This was in the early 1970s. This hippie that lived next door, and he would have his lawn mowed once a year. So it was like three feet tall. And we'd go over there and sickle it all down and rake it up and then burn all this dried up grass and stuff and I thought well maybe he'll buy us some booze you know instead of paying us so I asked him hey instead of paying us would you just buy us some some liquor and you know being a good hippie in the 1970s he was more than happy to buy alcohol for 12 year olds he was just like yeah man whatever you kids want you know just tell me what you want and I he said what do you what do you need and I thought about it and on the on my, the kitchen table at the house I grew up in 
was always a gallon jug of Gallo wine. You know, that was the, that was the, the, that was the staple, and then everything else was, you know, that's what you drank when everything else ran out. So I just, and I knew, and I'd seen everybody drinking off that bottle for years, and I thought, and I drank, you know, many times, but never really with the intention of just really drinking as much as I could, which was my idea then. So I just said, well, uh, why don't you get us some wine? He said, oh, that's fine. What kind of wine do you want? And I was thinking in my head already, I think I already had this alcoholic mind because I was thinking in my mind, well, this guy's a little slow. You know, I, I, want, I want the most volume for the money you get. I'm not really concerned about the, the quality here. Just give me the, the, what you can get. And he said, okay, I know what you want. And I just said, just get as much as you, you can get. So he came back and he had a couple of, of bags from the shopping store. And in those bags were five-fifths, you know, the big, the big bottles of MD-2020. And um, so I, I tell that story just for that reaction right there. I really do. The, uh, but I don't even need to tell you where that, where that story went. But, um, you know, it ended up with, with me doing some really, you know, insane stuff. And uh, I was supposed to be watching my little sister. We lost my little sister. And the neighbors found her. She was over at some neighbor's house that realized that the parents were out of control, the kids were out of control. And this little young girl who was eight years younger than me um, uh, was running around. The neighbors took my sister in. And, and, but I'd gone from that, you know, and, the, and, and I, you know, I never slowed down after that. You know, there was, there was times in my, uh, before I got sober where, I, I, got a, I got a handle on, on life a little bit. I started working on boats up in Alaska when I was 17 years old. Between that time and the time I started working on the boats in Alaska, I'd been to, 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 to many foster homes. I'd been to group homes. I did all of my high school years were incarcerated because I started breaking into houses and stealing cars and other things that are frowned upon. And they, uh, in order to support my alcohol and drug habit, my brother and I both were, were that way. And so, um, you know, by the I got out, you know, I was just about ready to turn 18. I got a job and I went to up fishing in Alaska and I absolutely loved it. I just, it was just something about it. It was the first, uh, it was the first time in my life that I had men who were mentors to me that taught me how to work hard and they would we would we would work hard play hard but we wouldn't just work hard play hard we would play hard while we were working I mean it was just the wild wild west in those days and and uh, um, and I, I'm pretty much retired from that business now but I stayed in that long and in, into my sobriety and and uh, um, ended up you know just having some really had a really really great career in that business and and, uh, um, and so, you know, because of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, I had a great career and, um, you know, I, I just, you know, when, when that obsession to destroy ourselves with booze and drugs is removed, we find out things about ourselves that we have no idea at all that are possible. We have find out that we have these um, these qualities about ourselves that, you know, when, when the obsession is on you, and I got to a place where the only reason I was drinking was to, and doing drugs was to overcome this compulsion for more. That was it. 
And that's what they talk about in a, in a vision for you, you know, that those old memories, those days were gone, you know, the camaraderie with friends and the feeling that life was good and all of those things that booze gave us were gone and the only thing left was this overwhelming obsession for more. That was it. Um, and, uh, you know, my, I was in, I was, went to, to uh, um, when I was, when I was, went into this new junior high school, you know, I just didn't fit at all. My, my, the, the home I was in was out of control. My hair, long hair was really popular then, and so I had long hair, but it was really greasy, and I didn't, you know, I, nobody did taught me really proper, proper hygiene, and so I didn't brush my teeth, and I smelled. And then I had this deal in junior high school. I'm like 12 or 13 years old going into junior high school, and I was still wet in the bed. And so I would get up in the morning, and I would towel dry myself off the best I could, and I would go through the big stack of dirty clothes that were on the floor of my bedroom, trying to find the cleanest of the dirty clothes to put on. And then I would go to school that way. And, and I stunk, and I looked really, really goofy, um, you know, and I just had no confidence. It was just absolute torture for me to, to go to school like that. And then I had this other thing. Before I really found uh, the, the booze and the drugs in good enough quantities, um, I had this deal where I would, where I would choke myself until I, and then I would wait until I was almost ready to pass out, and then I would let go, and I would get this euphoria from that. And it didn't matter if the stepdad was screaming and yelling. It didn't matter nothing. You know, I was just had this euphoria for 30 seconds or a minute. So I stunk. I had this long hair. I smelled like urine. Um, and everything I had was filthy. And I didn't know anybody. And then I would choke myself and stagger around and stuff. So my popularity began to wane just a little bit. And... But... Uh, you know, I lost all that stuff, all the fishing stuff. These guys that I was, I was drinking with these guys, I was doing drugs with these guys, and there was something about me among them. All of us, you know, I was thinking all of us are doing this, but there was something about me. There was an intensity, this urgency that happened when I drank, where I couldn't stop, and I, you know, this, 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 and it was scared them, and they told me, you know, we're afraid we're just going to walk in, you're just going to be dead here in the stateroom, and and, uh, um, and these guys passed the hat and put me through treatment twice, these guys on the boats. And the second time when I didn't get sober, they said, listen, don't come back around. And, you know, we have this, we're so lucky that we have the, 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 the people that wrote the, uh, our big book. You know, when, when we look at like Bill Wilson and I just look at the book, I was just talking with somebody about this yesterday here, um, you know, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got, I think, you know, was after I'd got, um, I had a real rough patch about five or six years sober. And, uh, you know, my life wasn't going the way that I wanted it to. And there was just a lot of stuff going on. And it was a rough time. And somebody said, well, and, but I knew all about the big book. And he said, well, I want you to go back and I want you to read the big book as if it's poetry. And I thought, well, gosh, okay. So I did that and I went back and I looked at it and it just... You know, the thing, the book just came alive because this, 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 this poetic nature and this pace and everything that Bill Wilson had to his writing, you know, I just, uh, I talked about this at the step two and three, you know, what a masterpiece this book is. It really 
is, a, for, for spiritual books, you know, I consider it um, a masterpiece, be, and, and particularly this chapter that we talked about a lot at step two and three, this we agnostics, how, how, much, how, how beautiful and articulated an argument that Bill makes, and it's a very hard, like, why is it better to believe than it is to not to believe, and this way he walks us through that, but just the stuff that he says that, uh, um, you know, we've had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our entire attitude and outlook on life, and that we've been rocketed into this fourth dimension of existence of which we'd not even dreamed, and um, and then you know the 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 stuff that um, that you know he writes about the uh, um, this wishing for the end that will know loneliness such as few do that um, that will be at the jumping off place. He writes that. Uh, you know, some of us have to be pretty badly mangled before we commence to get any real help. And that's, you know, that's, th those are big words, that word mangled. You know, when you think about that, like, that's where I had to get to. And, um, you know, I would, I would sit behind the McDonald's and I would listen to the people coming through the drive-thru and I would hear them order their food like every 30 seconds, you know, until late in the night. And they, people would be driving up ordering their food, and they would say, I'll have a number three supersize with a Diet Coke. And I thought I would hear them say, hey, somebody call the FBI. There's a freak back here shooting Coke. And it was just a, it was just a, this jumpy situation, you know, for me. It was just, you know, like um, extraordinarily uncomfortable. Um, and, uh, but... You know, in the end, um, you know, our co-founder, Bill, wrote, and he was just so amazing with the words. When, when I went through the book, you know, this hideous four horsemen, terror, bewilderment, frustration, despair, you know, nobody had to look those words up for me. You know, I had asked a lot of words. Like, I didn't know, like I'd said that word, altruistic. I didn't, didn't know so many of the words that were in the book. But nobody had to look those up for me. You know, I knew what be bewilderment meant. You know, I knew what terror was. I knew what frustration was. I knew, you know, I didn't say, well, geez, despair. Geez, what's that mean? Look, can, you, can we get the dictionary out? And, you know, I just knew. And he's just so amazing that way. And yet, at the very end of his writings, you know, he comes up with these words. He says, no words can tell. No words can tell. This guy who was just so gifted in writing. Um, and, you know, when you've, when you've been to that place, when you've been to that lonesome valley, like I was behind that McDonald's, and in that McDonald's restaurant there was a parking lot, and in that parking lot was, uh, it was a, behind the McDonald's, there was a kind of a U-shaped parking lot, and one of the, the buildings in there was the Fremont Hall. And, you know, it was really it was really cool that, that Jay Bear um, came up, somebody I just absolutely love and read. And that was just by, by a random thing that they just picked that. And Bob, who I've known my entire sobriety, you know, since. Uh, but uh, the, the, the Fremont Hall location at Greenwood was shared a parking lot with that McDonald's. And I somehow, and I still today, I just like, I don't know how it happened because I didn't want to get sober. I wasn't trying to get sober. I thought... I just said, I thought, even if I did want to, which I don't, and even if I did try, which I'm not going to, it's just going to be one more attempt and one more failure. Uh, 
that was that was the deal. I was just like, there's no way that I could ever do this. But I went to that hall looking for a friend of mine who would go there. And I thought, I don't know if I just thought that he just lived there or something, but I just walked out of the McDonald's and the, the, the back porch was filled with people. And, you know, that's that's the, these these things kind of this, this thoughts that we have from our childhood and the, that I was a freak, that I was no good, that I came from this bad family, that all of these things that, that went along with that. And there was, you know, it was it was a horrific scene in my house that that uh, um, and in many of the other places that I went. Um, but still inside, there was a bunch of people in the back porch of that AA hall and they would be out there and it was summertime and they would be out there playing cards and dice and talking and stuff. And but I couldn't walk up past all those people. You know, I couldn't do it because what if what are they going to think of me? They're going to think that that some kind of a freak has showed up at their meeting. And, I, you know, if they find out about who I really am, they're going to banish me from the tribe, you know. And so I walked all the way around the block. And I came in the front door of the hall, which nobody used. Everybody parked in the back. Everybody came and went out of the back. I walked in the front door of the hall, and I took a seat. If you were to look at a calendar on June the 8th of 1989, uh, it was a Thursday night, and it was an 8 o'clock meeting. Uh, I went and I sat down, and the meeting went on. It was a B1 meeting. It went the name of the meeting. And the meeting went on. And I thought, the meeting ended, and I just thought, oh, my God, man, I am in real trouble here. You know, I had no money. I knew that I was getting sicker by the minute. That just was part of the way that I drank and, and uh, was that when I stopped, I would get violently, violently ill. And I thought, man, I don't know what I'm going to do, you know. There was a bank across the street from the McDonald's, and I thought, well, in the morning, I'll go in there and rob that bank. You know, that was the best idea I could come up with was that I'm going to go in there in the morning and rob that bank. I think I can hang on till then. And the meeting ended and something happened to me that I didn't expect. And I just started crying in this A meeting. Big tears came down my face. And, and it was like this hollow thing, you know, that happens. Is this, this in, when you see that face of hopelessness and you see that this hollow piece that happens where I was crying but I could have just been sitting there. Not, nothing changed in the emotions, you know, the, the depth. It, it was just such a low-level existence. It didn't, nothing just happened. And, uh, um, and like I'd said before, you know, I learned about giving from experts in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and a couple of guys came up to me that I'd never met before. I'd met a few people at the hall because I had come to meetings before. But a couple of people came up to me after the meeting one of them was the guy that had, was secretarying that meeting that night. And he came up to me and said, uh, listen, if you're willing to go to detox, we'll give you a ride. And matter of fact, we've already made a few calls, and they got a bed waiting for you. <laughs> and so we'll take you right there. And so I you know, looked at him for a minute, and I thought, well, how in the hell does this guy know I need to go to detox? <laughs> The, uh, I, 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 uh, you know, part of the, part of the story for me with, with alcoholism and, and believe me, if I, if you took all of the drugs out of my story completely, um, 
I, I was a was a late stage chronic hardcore alcoholic. I mean, I drank and drank and drank and drank and drank. But with everything I was doing to control that whole situation, I was just absolutely emaciated. I was covered with, with tracks. I had track marks on my hands. I had a shopping bag, a plastic shopping bag in my hands. I was filthy dirty. I had a shop, plastic shopping bag in my hands. And in there was all of my you know, prized possessions that were too great to risk leaving behind the McDonald's. And in there was, uh, was my shoes. I walked into that meeting in, with bare feet, and the reason my shoes were in the bag was because my feet had abscessed and I couldn't get my shoes on anymore. And my feet hurt. So I'm looking at these guys and I said, well, I need to get my affairs in order here. And, <laughs> and, uh, and they said, oh, great, well, how long is that gonna take? And I said, oh, you know, about maybe five minutes or so. I just need to run behind the McDonald's, make sure I haven't left anything out there. Um, and I, I talked him into, you know, well, if we could get some cigarettes, that would be great. Um, and if we could get some, some beer, that would be great. If you guys can buy some beer, that would be really great because I don't want to go to detox and, and not be really lit. And so they bought the cigarettes, and they didn't buy me the beer. They, they, but they, anyways, but I got my first five days of sobriety at Evergreen Manor Detox in Everett, Washington. And, you know, these... There's a, a part in our book that talks about inspiration and intuitive thought in the 10th step. Inspiration, intuitive thought, this vital sixth sense, this, this thing that we have, we go through the steps and we just kind of intuitively know what the right thing to do is. We were five minutes probably or 10 minutes at the most from the downtown Seattle detox where they could have took me. But these guys drove me up to Everett, which is not that far, but, you know, it's 40 minutes or so, the city north of Seattle. And... They uh, um, and they dropped me off there because they knew like once I was there, I just I didn't have any game left at all. You know, it was all gone. I, I to try to figure out how to argue to get my pajamas back to, to give my hey, give me my clothes back. I want I want I want out of these pajamas, and then to, to I want my possessions, and then to try to figure out how I was gonna get. I mean, it's all going through my how am I gonna get out of here? How am I gonna get the money? Who am I gonna lie to? Who am I gonna rob? And then how am I going to figure out how to get the bus from Everett to Seattle? That was overwhelming for me to try to figure that out. And then I'm getting sicker by the minute. And, you know, they knew. I was stuck. And so at, when, when, uh, um, when I got out, Al B., who was the guy that drove me there and my first sponsor in AA, I just talked to Al 15 minutes. I told him I'm going to be telling our story, Al. And he said, well, good, good. And... And he said, you know, you'll do fine just, just because it's all the truth. And, and uh, um, he said, you know, that uh, he took me in. He had a little car lot down on Highway 99 in, in Seattle that, that he was running. It was a, what you call it in the car business, they would call this a dirt lot. It means that, you know, there's dirt. But it's just he had like maybe 10 or 12 cars for sale. And these were, these were not top, you know, they were not top of the line. These were for people that were down on their luck that needed to trade their cars and find something super cheap to, to drive. That's the kind of stuff he was peddling. And, and in the back of that car lot, there was a bed and there was a, a place to cook food and there was a little bathroom. And that's where I, that's where I went to, to live. And when I turned one year sober, I was still living at the car lot. 
And every day for six months before we missed a single day, Al was working seven days a week trying to make this business go. And he would come by and he would knock on the little window by the bed where I was sleeping. He'd wake me up. He would take me up to the jack in the box up on the corner, buy me a breakfast jack and a cup of coffee and talk to me about Alcoholics Anonymous. And then we'd go back to the car lot and he would make sure that I did, he was paying me like $5 an hour um, to, uh, to take care of some cars and do some little mechanic stuff. And I was handy because I'd been on the boats and, and, uh, and, you know, I'm thinking in my mind, the best I can come up with is, is I'm like thinking, man, I'm trapped here. You know, what this, what this is, what this guy's game is, is he goes in Alcoholics Anonymous and finds these people that are down on their luck <laughs> and he's using them for kind of this super cheap labor on his car lot. And you know, the truth was is that, is that he didn't need anybody. Him and his brother were partners on that business and there was only like 10 or 12 cars. They didn't need any, they didn't need a lot boy, you know, they didn't need anybody. And I was thinking in my mind, if he had any idea how much money I made when I was fishing up in Alaska and all the work that I, how talented I am and all that stuff and just, you know, it was just this nonsense. Um, and there was, there was one day when Al had come to me, and this was, you know, this is another thing just like when I look back on this miracle of a life that I've got to live in AA, that I just feel like I've lived two totally separate lives. I was 28 when I got sober, and now I've been sober for 32 years. And so I've got the, I've got this, uh, um, you know, these two totally, totally, totally separate lives that I've got to live. And, um, you know, I just look like, what a miracle that is. And I got sober. This, this for those of you that know Seattle, um, this car lot, it, which is still there, he, he doesn't own it anymore, but it's still there, um, is on 82nd and Aurora, which is a, a bad neighborhood. And it had every, every motel that I was staying in, when I had game enough to get hotel rooms and I was still had some, some stuff going on, all the, the, these hotels were there. I knew everybody. I knew the prostitutes. I knew the drug dealers. I knew everybody. I knew the people that were, which hotels were doing what, what was going on, people that were in and out of prison together. And there was the car lot, and Al would leave at night and I would be there at the car lot by myself. Uh, you know, that just amazing. You know, how, how I stayed sober? Just unbelievable to me. The... Um, Al came by the car lot and said, listen, uh, his mother had been sick and passed away, which I knew. And, and he said, I got to drive to uh, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, to where his mom's house was. I got to pick up some stuff and, and kind of clear a few things out, take care of a few things with the tenants that are going to be renting her house. And uh, So I won't be here at the car lot tomorrow. It was the first day I wasn't going to be with Al. 
And I just, you know, I just thought, uh, man, if Al doesn't show up, I am sunk, you know. There's no way I'm going to be able to stay sober. And uh, he said, just hang out, you know, I'll be gone a couple days and, and just hang out and go to the meetings, get up to the hall, to the noon meeting, go to the 5 o'clock, then go to the 8 o'clock, and then if they got a 10 o'clock, go to that. If they got a hoot owl meeting at midnight, go to that. And just come back here and just, you know, just keep your head down, just go straight up there to the hall and straight back and, and everything's going to be okay. Um, but I was sure it wasn't going to be okay. And Al... The, the morning that he wasn't going to be there, I came, went up to the car lot, and I was, I was in that, at the car lot, and I was with his brother, who was not an alcoholic, and his brother was pretty strongly of the opinion that, what are you doing, Al? Why is this guy living at the, at the car lot? You know, his brother was not real warm at that time that way, although he was a great guy, and he let me stay there, and, and I, I'm forever grateful uh, to his brother, Joe, but um, it was just a weird little deal. This guy's like, looking at me like, I don't know what you're going to do. You know, I, I guess I'll, you're supposed to go up to some meetings or something. And it's early in the morning. I'm drinking a cup of coffee. And then I see Al pulling in in his car. And I thought, well, that's crazy. He's not supposed to be here. He must have forgot something. Uh, and, the, you know, just that, that intuitive thought, this inspiration. The book calls it this vital sixth sense, you know, not these five senses we have but this vital sixth sense you know this intuitive thing that we have when we're when we're living this spiritual way of life and there's so many people in AA that are just like that you know just you know we just it says it becomes a working part of the mind we just come to expect these things these when you bump into people and you realize oh man that wasn't a coincidence that, I, that was somebody I was just thinking all this stuff you know this flow that just comes with living this way of life here in AA and Al had that and so he pulls in and he comes out and he comes up to the to the to the you know the room we had it was on the kind of you could look out over the car lot he walks up the stairs comes in and he says uh hey you know I was thinking that uh I could really use some help over there So why don't you just, why don't you come with me and give me some help? He knew. And we had this, this, this guy had just traded in this van at the car lot. And this sounds too wild to be true, but I'm promising you this is, this is absolutely true. This guy traded in this van at the car lot. And so Al said, well, take the money van. And I was like, man, that's going to be cool. It was a van. It was this green van. And it had a green shag carpet, had a bed in the back, had these huge big captain chairs, had these bubble green, uh, these green uh, um, tinted, green tinted bubble windows in the back. And, um, and I, I swear on the side of the, the van was somebody had airbrushed and had done a beautiful job. It was a hundred dollar bill on the outside of this van. So we looked like a couple of cocaine dealers or something <laughs> heading over to Idaho. Um, but we got in the money van and we went over there and it was just the most amazing, amazing trip. You know, we just had, you know, I, and he said, we're going to stop in Spokane and we're going to stop in Spokane and uh, there's a meeting there. 
but if we can get there by noon, we'll stop. If we can't get there by noon, we're just going to go on. So this was before everybody had these, these you know, cell phone devices. And, and so um, we're going along. And I'm thinking in my mind, you know, I'm just like a few months sober here. I'm thinking in my mind, um, I think if you're from out of town at a meeting, they have to call on you. Because Al had had a rule that unless you're called on, you don't speak. Don't, if they open the meeting up, that's not for you. You know, this is for, for other people that got something actually to say, you know. So, so I'm thinking, I'm thinking this is it. I'm going to get to share at this meeting because they're going to, but I'm worried we're not going to get there in time and I'm going to miss the little announcement to say, my name's Kenny, I'm from Seattle, we're in, which would prompt them to have to call on me and then would allow me to be able to talk and kind of set the record straight with Al a little bit. <laughs> and so I just kept asking him, I just kept saying, Hey man, what 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 time is it? You know, and he and how how long till we get to Spokane? And and do you think we're gonna make the meeting? You think we'll be there by noon? And he pulled into a, a little gas station. We gassed up, and he went in to pay. And in there, it used to be there was a time when they would have like a little cardboard stuff. They would sell different things. And nowadays they sell lighters and little vape stuff and things. But then there was they would sell these little watches in the gas stations for just a few dollars and you'd push one button and it'd give you the, the time, you push another button, it would give you the date and then you push another button, it could start a little second thing, you know, a little stopwatch or something. So he comes out of the store and he has one of these cheap little plastic watches <laughs> and a band and, and he throws it at me and he just says, quit asking me what time it is, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and we may, I, you know, I, I honestly, I don't know if we made it to the, we made the meeting in Spokane, but I don't know if they called me or anything. I just remember how stressed out I was. And, but the, the reason I tell you that is like today, um, one of the things that happened, like what I said earlier about this obsession to destroy ourselves with booze, when that's removed and we get to kind of find out who we are, we get to go through the steps and get rid of all those things who we aren't and what appears is who we are. And um, I found out, you know, I was pretty good at business. And so I had a really good, I didn't want to go back out fishing in Alaska. And I had a really, I just had this, this knack of kind of putting things together and it, things worked out really well. And I live in this beautiful house. I've got all kinds of things. My, um, I, and I should mention this, you know, my, my wife and I have been married for um, we've been married for 23 years and we've been together 25 years and so um, we've raised a couple of kids together we've raised my my daughter who is 30 years old now my daughter I that was one of the things that was happening when I was about five years sober was that uh, my daughter was born and the person her mother was you know things didn't weren't working out and it was just crushing me and um, but uh, um, you know, we just, we've been, I've just been given this, this whole new life. And, but I think about that, like, I got a drawer at home. Um, and if there's any burglars in here, like I used to be a burglar, you know, I'm, I'm not going to th throw out my address right now, but I got a drawer at home that is just has all kinds of watches in it, you know, like nice watches that people have given me and I've gotten in business or I bought and things. And, uh, um, and I would trade that whole box right now for that little plastic watch that Al gave me. In a second, I would do it. Um, I don't know whatever happened to that, but I wish I, I, wish I did. Um, you know, those are the kind of things. It's not the, the, the big things that, that are happened to us in, because we're sober and the long 
time that we've been sober is, um, you know, that's not the, the things that are going to be important to us, like on those final days, I think, you know, when, whenever that time comes for me or it's going to be these little things, these little kind acts that people have done for me, these little things that people have done, these little memories that I have in AA and just these amazingly beautiful people that I've got to meet. And, um, uh, you know, Al was 13 years sober when he sponsored me. And he's, we just, this, this summer, um, we just had a deal at my house. He lives in Lake Havasu, Arizona now. He came up and we had his 45th AA anniversary party at my house. So he's 45 years sober now. And the amazing thing that I've seen is that he has changed. When, the, the, when, when he first started sponsoring me, he was the only guy I think that could have sponsored me because I saw him get into two fights in my first year of sobriety. And not just little altercations, but, you know, they, these guys were going at it and people to break them up. And it was mostly people would come back to the car lot and say, hey, I need my, want my money back for the car. And Al would blow up and, you know, turn into a scene. Um, but the, the, uh, from, from 13 to, um, to 45, he has changed as much as I changed in from one year to 32 years. It's amazing. Like, he's a totally, totally different guy now than he was then. Like, way, way different. And so we've got to share in that. And when I was <clears throat> going through this tough, really one of the most difficult times in my sobriety, I found another guy, this guy Tim and, and uh, um, Tim Crane. And, and he, um, he passed away this year. But from the time he was my spiritual mentor, or my spiritual guide, for from the time I was about six years sober up until he just passed away this year. And he introduced me to the 12 and 12 and Emmett Fox and endless kinds of things. And, you know, we were always working on something together. You know, he would throw out these metaphors and similes and stuff and we'd break them down or look at old stuff. And, um, you know, he was, a, uh, you know, he was a real seeker and a sage and he was a guy that had taken a vow of, poverty, chastity, and obedience, you know, so um, he would have liked, he didn't really, wasn't a big fan of the chastity part, but, um, but he said, because I've taken this vow of poverty, there's just not too many people that want to be with me, you know, so he just kind of accepted that, that there wasn't a lot of other people that wanted to join him in that kind of a life, and this vow of obedience, that he was obedient to the spiritual way of life, that, that, you know, we do things that in AA, you know, I think about my, uh, um, and I should mention this, my mother is, is sober many years. She's not in AA, but she's sober many years. She found her guru, the Ram Das was her guru. He just died a couple years ago, her, her longtime guru. And, uh, and so she's been on a spiritual path and just one of the most wonderfully spiritual minded people you'd ever meet my, my, uh, my, um, my wife calls her Mother Earth, you know, because she's just, she's, she's got long gray hair. She wears these long dresses, and she's a big woman. She has a big bosom, and man, when she hugs you, you know you've been loved, you know. She is just uh, this amazing person, and that relationship's been restored. The, um, the, my, my daughter, um, 
went to the Evergreen State College here in Washington, which puts the liberal and liberal arts, I think. And, um, and as near as I can tell, I'm not sure, I've really paid attention to, and as near as I can tell, she got a degree in anarchy. That's the best I can kind of <laughs> make out of, out of her years at Evergreen. And, uh, um, and uh, then she went on to Naropa uh, University for graduate school, which is a Buddhist university. In, uh, in Boulder, Colorado, and graduated from there. And she's a creative, creative writing and literature, and, and she's a poet. Um, her husband is a poet, um, and I'm very proud of him. And I think probably what that means is that, uh, is that I'm the only safety net they have, and, and so I'm gonna keep working for a while and keep doing what I can. Um, when I was, uh, when I was, um, uh, years into my sobriety, um, I met a woman in AA that had grabbed, come up and grabbed me at a function kind of like this and grabbed me and said, you know, I need some help. You know, I know you sponsor, will you please help me, please help me. My wife was with me. My wife said, Kenny, you have to help this woman. And the next day she was in a mental um, hospital um, and I would talk to, and I just did what we all, I talked to her and, and on the phone she would call and, uh, and I would read the big book to her just like somebody read the big book to me. And she came out of that and just had this, um, you know, this, this amazing deal. She was just like this humble, humble human being. And there's a saying that says that the, the, the deeper the humility, the brighter the flame burns. So when you, with, with certain spiritual people, when they're trying to push people away, the flame just, and they're trying not to get any attraction themselves, the flame just burns brighter and brighter. And she was one of these people. And you had to schedule five minutes with her. Um, and she just, she sponsored, you know, a lot of women in the town and, um, and, uh, you know, because I was her sponsor, I knew that, uh, um, that she was HIV positive and, uh, this was before a lot of the really great medicines that they have today. And she, she turned into a full blown AIDS patient. And one of the things I, I noticed that her son, he was eight years old when I met him. His uh, father died of a heroin overdose a couple months before I met him. And just prior to her dying, he was 15 by then, that I was with her during that time. And she'd asked my wife and I if we would be willing to take her son and take care of him and raise him like he was our own if anything ever happened to her. And, you know, when, when, when she had me like that and was needing all that help, I was looking around over the crowd thinking, I'm sure there's somebody here that can help you. This is a little bit much for me. And so I'm telling you a story of a 12-step call that I wanted to give to somebody else. And, uh, um, you know, when she passed, I was there when she passed. I was holding her hand when she passed. Her son was there. I walked in with a young boy to say goodbye to his mother, and I walked out with my son, Jake. And I, I promise you, there wasn't anybody coming back behind the McDonald's saying, hey, would you take care of my kid? You know, that's, that's a, this transformational nature of this program that we have, the, the, the depth of what, what kind of changes are possible when you go through these steps and, and you reach your hand out and start helping other people and you make those amends. And, and I, I'm, I'm probably out of time. I'm going to tell one story, and that's, that will be the end. Um, and, uh, but... 
when I was when I was a kid, I spent a lot. Of, I wasn't just homeless just before I got sober. I was homeless just for a few minutes, really, before I got sober. I'd only been camped out there for a short time, and and I most of the time I was able to come up with somewhere to go, you know, a hotel room or something. But as a kid, I was homeless a lot because there were times when I would just wander around in the streets um, all night long because it was better to do that than it was that's than it was to go home to where my brother and I shared a bedroom. It was easier for me to walk around all night long in the pouring down rain sometimes and hitchhike to get into so somebody would let me in their car so I could get warm and all of the bad things that happen when a young kid does those kind of things. Um, and uh, um, but I go to this friend of mine, Steve's house, and Steve had this, his parents lived in the house, they let him live in the garage, and he had this beautiful garage. He had this huge, the speakers in the garage were as big as this, this, this podium here. And it, he, we would just play Inagata De Vida and Pink Dark Side of the Moon and all this crazy stuff. And, and he always had a bag of weed. He always had like these cases of beer stacked up. And I don't know what was going on with his parents because they were living in the house and they just let this kid do this. Um, but there was always girls there. He had this dog that I just, this dog was a German Shepherd. And, and if anybody knocked on the door, the German, and he didn't have a hold of that dog or the dog got loose, the dog would start chewing on whoever came in the door of this garage. And so it was, I mean, it was a cool place. It was like really, really cool. Um, you know, and, uh, but later in life when I was walking around, I'd be homeless and I would walk around, I'd see these clearly underutilized garages. And I would think in my mind, like, God, if somebody would let me live in their garage. This was the level of consciousness that I had coming into AA. If somebody would let me live in their garage, it wouldn't be my garage. It'd be somebody else would be letting me live in their garage. I'd put some blankets up, and I'd put a little bed in, and I'd put hot plates in a microwave, and... You know, I, I'd, I'd, uh, um, I'd, I'd get a great stereo system. I'd get some posters. I'd, that would be really cool. And then I'd have a place, and I'd put a little heater in there. You know, I had it all in my mind how this would be. It would be kind of like Steve's place. Um, and years sober, something occurred to me. And it occurred to me that during all those times and looking at all those garages, I never saw the house. You know, I never saw this thing like maybe God would have me live in a house. And, you know, that's become this, this, this analogy that my wife and I use all the time. We just, we, you know, things get better and better and better in our lives. We just said, maybe this is just the garage. Maybe, you know, what is it in your life that you're, that you're, that's right in front of you that you can't even see because you don't have the consciousness to rise to a level. And that's where the book will help you get there. It says that we're, we'll, you know, that um, our imagination will be fired. You know, that um, we'll, we can rise to this, this, this next level of consciousness that, um, that, you know, I began to see the house. And, um, and so with that, I think I'll, I'll end there and, um, and tell you all how much I love you. I really mean that. I love you and I love Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and I want to thank you for the meeting. I want to thank all of the committee members that were here and our speakers. I can't wait to hear Dawn tonight. It's going to be great. And if you, 
I, I went in to listen to Magdalena, who's one of my very favorite speakers of all. And if you didn't get that, then support the tape, but get that because that was an excellent talk, Magdalena. Thank you so much. That was absolutely excellent. And, and to Rose and everybody that's, that's uh, done their, their work here. Thank you so much. Love you. Absolutely beautiful. Kenny D.